really important that you have a meeting with the self, the undiscovered self that's always been there. Come into that and embrace that person. And how can you two work together to propel yourselves in unleashing that part of you while relinquishing that weaker part of you that no longer serves you? It may have served you at one point in time, but it's time for, and as Benoit mentioned again with the Golden Buddha, bringing that part out and letting that part of you now to help you to strive to your your highest and best self. Because I think too many people will tend to put that self down or are scared to unleash that self. It's really important. We can call it the authentic self. You can call it whatever you want. Bring that out and you'll see yourself much happier, much more fulfilled in whatever you do. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week, we continue our conversation with Dr. Bob Schultz. Dr. Schultz is one of the most impressive and widely experienced people we have ever met. A former Marine Special Force, Bob has worked extensively in physical fitness and martial arts, earning him a fifth degree black belt in Kempo and senior instructor status in Jeet Kune Do, Filipino Kali and Kali Slept. He also holds a PhD in neuropsychology, as well as certifications in NLP, executive coaching, and peak performance mindset. In last week's episode, Bob shares a bit of his background, as well as some of his biggest tips towards effective learning and decision making, so we recommend you starting there. This week, we discuss one of our favorite topics, the healing power of curiosity. Bob tells a powerful story of his father's upbringing and passing. Despite a violent upbringing and a strained relationship with his father, Bob leaned into curiosity to uncover his father's past and ultimately learning to forgive his father just two days before his passing. You will also hear about Bob's childhood, living in Okinawa, learning martial arts, and eventually in the United States. Hey everyone! Welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to Discover More. at other athletes who have completely self-destructed. I remember watching John McEnroe. He was a famous tennis player um, at one time. And this guy was always in his own head and he blamed other people. He didn't accept responsibility. He went from being a person that could have been one of the greatest of all time because his talent was there. His skill set was there. But his mindset was not there and he self-destructed time and time and time again by blaming outside circumstances. He was always him against other people. It was all always about that instead of him focusing on how can I continue to improve and, and become the best that I can possibly be. And that's the mindset that the most elite athletes will continue to do versus the ones that self-destruct eventually. 
So when we can become the best that we can be, I said earlier, challenge ourselves to be better than what we were the day before, then you will continue to grow. But again, it's not about you against other people. It's about you against yourself. And that's what the greatest Olympians of all time have been able to do. I think this is a perfect opportunity to dive a little bit into the psychology aspect of your identity and your background. And of course, human behavior has been a core center interest for you ever since you were young. Ever since you were young, ever since you were tinkering about the outlets and the Marines, the LAPDs, the parkour, whatever other physical feats are always interconnected with the mental feet. So this is once again a personal curiosity. This question may not land anywhere, then I take full responsibility for that. I just wanna state the obvious, that when you first told me about your injury in 2013 from parkour, you showed me a picture. It's literally a bloody nose. Your face was bloody all over. Looked like you just survived a murder scene or from like a horror movie set. But then you were 63, right? I think you were either 63 or 62 at that age when the incident happened which is bonkers to me. And for people listening out here, like once again, not many 62 or 62 year olds try to jump from roof to roof, especially after how rigorous the thing is. And I share that because Aiden and myself, we've been watching this parkour channel on YouTube called Store, S-T-O-R-R-O-R. And it's a British group of seven. And these are world-class parkour athletes and they're doing all these seemingly impossible things. So just talking about your parkour definitely excites me and it's very relevant because we've been binge watching them every day the past seven days. Uh, with that being said, I just want to do like a quick psychological profiling of you and people that are similar to you. And I'm going to state the obvious that in my perspective, I think you're built different, frankly, because it doesn't matter how much curiosity I have. I just won't do what you do, right? I, I have a lot of curiosity with parkour but I'm not sure what would motivate me to do such a thing. And it's not about fear. It's not about calculated risk. I just don't have that in me. And of course, I'm a veteran. I'm into physical workout. I work. I wake up in the morning and all that stuff. But being said, I do think there are genetical factor into you and other like Navy SEALs or former Special Forces. I do think that, or like ultra distance runners. There is a criteria in you that sets you apart and that makes you that wiring differently aspect. Um, so for you, Bob, I'm curious that, like, what do you think, aside from your lived experiences, and of course the answer is nature and nurture, but what about you that makes you are so gravitating towards these insane and very, very rigorous tasks? Uh, not one, not two, but like five different things. Yeah, so going back to my earliest days, when I first started learning the martial arts, and then as a toddler, my mother wanted me to be a warrior. She instilled that into my psyche and that we had come from a family history of that kind of stuff. And then being exposed to not only her in terms of martial arts, but also living in Okinawa, studying with one of the, the originals in, in terms of goju back when I was a child and learning that in the mindset that they had to have and the rigorous things that, I mean, at, at five years old, doing some of the stuff that I still remember putting myself through and wanting to put myself through that. For example, um, striking the Makirara board back and forth like, like this, boom, and, and, and my knuckles bleeding. And I did that for three years there, doing it five days a week, just smashing, doing these basic things. 
and then using spear hand techniques they had so after about a year and a half i was allowed to do it basically it had a big pot and started off like with sand then rice eventually moving up to beans and then jabbing your, your finger like this down into that so putting myself through that kind of pain and then i understood pain as well and i understood that i could overcome certain things that i had gone through to the point where i had as i i told you before that i was on my grandparents farms i had two major incidents that happened there like one thing was like i had carrying the old-fashioned coffee can where you had to open it up with a little key on the outside so the the coffee can itself was very sharp and as i'm walking on a wet log i slipped and fell and that coffee can hit me on my my forehead up into my scalp and just opened it all the way up so i had stitches on that but it didn't kill me and then a couple months later i was next to my grandparents my grandmother's stove there was a a skillet full of hot hot grease that was actually knocked over and it hit my my right thigh. I ended up with third degree burns, but it didn't kill me. And I had a lot of other things that think that this would be like the end, but it didn't. It didn't end my life. It didn't end who I was or anything like that. So I, I challenged myself to a lot of different things. One of the things I learned was that pain let me know that I was alive. And I didn't learn that until later on, but I had uh, insights into doing that kind of stuff. And Ben, while you said that you know you wouldn't do this kind of stuff, yet you've done stuff that challenged you, it may not been on a kind of physical level, but you've probably done stuff where you had a little bit of fear state that you were able to channel and then get focused. So it doesn't matter whether it's a physical activity, a mental activity, or anything else. We can all go there. You, you decide to leave a career that was well-paying and everything like that to take a leap of faith of doing something. That's the same thing as leaping off, like jumping from one building to the next. This is not going to kill you if you make a mistake, but it's still taking that leap of faith. It's the same kind of, of uh, mental state that one would get in. And I don't look at it as any different. What I did and what you mentioned in terms of doing all these kind of stuff is not any different than, than what you've done. You took the leap of faith. You came here to Los Angeles, a whole new career, going after a, another degree or something like that. When other people would say, that's kind of stupid, Ben. Why, why did you do something like that? You, you were in a well-paying job and you were doing really well in terms of at what you were doing, but you took the leap of faith and you did it. So to me, that's not any different than than somebody, some extreme athlete doing what they did with the adrenaline level going, but they may calm it down with, with cortisol because I think I look at cortisol as a good thing in that sense because it helps to bring homeostasis after you get into adrenaline. So what you did was the same thing as, as what I do in, in parkour. So it's not any different. Yeah, and I think that idea speaks to just the different levels of risk that each specific person has, right? Like you and Benoit are each telling your own stories, but it's the same flow or the same risk-taking that you just alluded to, but just in a different context or a different spectrum, right? There's obviously nuance around maybe like a physically life-threatening approach or something that's more like vulnerability and emotionally risky, you know? So I think that's a really interesting and important light that you just shined on that 
I guess, risk-taking and diving right in approach um, that I think anyone listening can take away and apply to their own lives of where they could jump in a little more, take a few more risks or embrace that uncertainty that you just alluded to. One of the things that you brought up that I'm interested in is your time in Okinawa. You said you spent some time living there. And whether it's, you know, again, like Benoit said, this might be a question that lands or doesn't, but I'm sure it had some sort of effect on your life. Is there anything that you learned there, either martial arts related or otherwise, that you took away from this Eastern culture and kind of brought into your own life? Maybe it's a new way of thinking, um, a new way of relating to people, but really I'd be fascinated by how Japanese culture or Eastern philosophy has impacted your life. So here's the thing, I'm half Japanese. And my mom, again, was my first teacher in the martial arts. And she taught me a lot uh, growing up. The Asian cultures are more exposed to Western ideals today than they were back then. It was something brand new. And it was a big shock for her. And I grew up with her singing me like Japanese lullabies and telling me Japanese stories. And I was eating sushi before sushi became a thing in the United States. So, so I was already ingrained in that. And then in Okinawa, then later in Japan, um, I was exposed more to it. And Okinawa was much different than mainland Japan itself. At that time, it was a possession of the United States uh, because Americans had gone into the Battle of Okinawa and ended up taking over. So the Okinawans, their culture and the way they say things, I learned quite a bit that they're really, really highly family-oriented, but community-oriented. As are Asians in general, they were just more so in, in Okinawa. They had a sense of, of purpose, and they looked at life much differently than what I would see in, in the Western world. They woke up each day uh, with that sense of, what can I do for the day, you know, this, this purpose? Hence. I think Okinawans are driven by that. They're among the longest living people in, in the world. So I know that uh, even like Japan, so recently came out with Japan in 2020, the um, Japanese people overall, their lifespan went up even during the midst of the pandemic in 2020, whereas here in the United States, our lifespan decreased and Okinawans even live longer than that. And I think the the country with the second longest um, lifespan is South Korea. So we look at the Asian countries in general, and they have a sense of community, they have more of a sense of purpose than we do here in the Western world. So as a child living in Okinawa and, and seeing that, being exposed to that environment, I think because of my age, I was able to assimilate more of that than, than had I been an adult and everything like that. And, and also learn about discipline, while I was um, in that dojo. So unlike um, dojos here, one of the things that we had to do before and after, we actually had a, so before we got started training, we actually had to sweep the hallways and everything and then the tiny mats. So we had to sweep that out. We had to make sure it was clean and afterwards as well. So this is part of our training that I don't see here in the United States at all. So it was a different experience that I still uh, have to this day. So when I go and I see dojos, it's a much, much different. And again, we didn't have like mats you see in dojos today. It was tatami mats. So it was a much, much different environment. Um, there was times where I could have killed myself in Okinawa as a kid. Me and my friends, we went to, they had a lot of caves there. 
So caves was where a lot of the Japanese soldiers fought and everything like that when the Americans came in. So we went to one cave and I actually found a skull and some other bones and it turned out to be that of a Japanese soldier that had been killed there and started digging around. So one of my friends went back and dug further and ended up getting killed because it was a, a undetonated uh, explosive that was stolen there from World War II. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. So we were told not to go back to those caves anymore. But yeah, so it was, it was interesting. I got to experience a lot of different things just as a kid living in Okinawa and, and really unleash my curiosity and, and so forth. Yeah, it's amazing that you can recall when you're eight, nine years old in such vivid details 60 years later with how much knowledge and exposure you have in your brain. And it, to me, sounds like you're a few years living in Japan and Okinawa as a adolescent, as a child, was extremely formidable. And it's not often that we come across people like you, Bob, where you have an exceptional level of consistency. Like everything you talked about, your adventurousness, your curiosity, your acts of explorations, you doing all these things in Japan are consistent throughout your entire life. And I'm sure those were the corner blocks that enabled you to join the Marines, to park tour and all these fascinating experiences you ended up living. And since we talked about your mother and you talked about your childhood uprising in Japan, I think it's only fair for us to uh, talk about your father. Um, if you feel comfortable sharing, I know you briefly touched on the fact that a while ago in the conversation that your dad was violent, physically violent towards you, I think when you're a toddler. Um, because I asked that because of course this question touches on nature and nurture. And of course, nurture involves two components, which is your mother and your father. And to me, it sounds like despite and in spite of your childhood challenges, aside from the explosions and the near death incidents from bombs being detonated from World War II time, I know for sure that it had a lot of influence on you just aside from the physical trauma aspect. But I'd love to just ask you to talk about that part of your life where you were, you had to navigate between the complex family dynamics of your mom and also your dad's uh, physical tendencies, if you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. So one of the things uh, with my father, yes, he was very, very abusive and he would take things out on me, whatever he felt. He treated me in essence like a slave at times. I can recall like, because he would be away and sometimes even away for like two years at a time. Then he'd come back and I suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder when he, when he would come back. And I would try to find places to hide so I, I wouldn't feel his wrath. Anytime I made a mistake, whether wasn't doing good on tests in school or otherwise, my father would tell me to strip my clothes. He would get out a thin belt, just start whacking until I bled. Those were difficult times. So when I was five years old, I, my father thought I had a mental disorder. I stuttered and I wasn't doing well on tests and all this kind of stuff. So I was given an IQ test and the IQ test showed it was a 70. So I was diagnosed as being mentally retarded according to the IQ test. School psychologists gave it to me. And so my diagnostic label was moron. So that came, that was stayed in my jacket for years and I was being introduced as this moron. So school was a challenge early on for me, but my curiosity never waned, uh, no matter what my father did to me, because I think my mother had that um, alternate aspect. 
And it wasn't until later I realized why he did what he did. Because again, my curiosity got the best of me. But going back to that 70 IQ, so here I was considered mentally retarded. And I thought I was for a lot of years. Even though like I knew the answer to certain things and questions, I would not answer them. It wasn't until I think when I was in the sixth grade when I started accelerating in school and I got into junior high and I really accelerated to a point where like math and science, all these things came, became like super, super easy. But I think it came, went all the way back to my early, early curiosity of wanting to know things and particularly in science, I was able to transfer a lot of that kind of stuff and really understanding math and science from a conceptual aspect versus a textbook a- aspect. So I was able to transfer that. And this reason I took algebra in the seventh grade and then geometry in the eighth grade and algebra two and trig in the ninth grade and calculus in the 10th grade, as well as physics and everything else. So I was able to accelerate that, then graduate early. And then after my time in the Marines, in fact, I took the Marine Corps, what was the GT, it was a Naval GT and I scored in a 99th percentile. That alone would allow me to get into Menza. But I took, we took the IQ test in 1985 and I scored in 156. So I went from a 70 to 156. I think it brought up my curiosity on why IQ tests are, are worth anything at all. You know, because we get labeled and everything and I, I thought it was the stupidest thing. So going from 70 to 156, again, didn't make sense to me. So I put no, even to this day, I don't really have a big belief in IQ tests. And I think if you're going to use IQ tests for anything, you can use it as measuring tool, as a feedback tool where you can progress to, to get better. But that's the only thing that anything like that should be of, of value, but not measuring somebody's intelligence because it's multiple intelligence. And so, so my curiosity, going back to my father, so my father passed away in 1983. He wanted forgiveness and I forgave him uh, when, when he passed away. It was two days, it was on December 27th when he passed away. So I was able to, to forgive him. But later, as I dove deeper into psychology and, and a mental state, I was so curious of what happened to my father that, that transformed him into becoming the man that he became, why he was so violent, because I had to know why. And so I started asking questions of, of people that knew him during that period of time and, and what he grew up in and the environment. So my dad grew up in the Ozarks way back then. So the hillbilly country and all this kind of stuff. He was also born out of wedlock. So my grandmother had a fling with a, with a Marine at that point, a Marine who had been in World War I. So she got pregnant and she had my father and she did not want to marry this Marine. And instead, she found Trapper, who was there in the Ozarks, and ended up marrying him, who I knew as my grandfather. My grandmother was considered really mean during that period of time. Her and her sisters were considered mean. And my grandfather really wasn't much better. My dad had scars on his back from, from whipping, from actual whips and everything like that. He, he had been treated bad from all the knowledge I gathered. That's what happened to him when he was a little boy. So I look back at my father and what he went through and how he became the man that he became. And I started looking at that little boy, that picture. And I started like having compassion for that boy. 
because he needed help. He needed somebody to, to help him. So to this day, I hold that image and I still have that picture of him when I was a little boy that he needed somebody, he needed the right guidance. Had he had the right guidance, he probably would have been different. And my father wanted to know about his father. His mother would not let him know his, his real father. His real father was from Texas. And it, here my dad, on his last year of his life, he finally got to talk to his father. My father cried. Finally, he got to talk to his own father and finally understood why at that point in time and then later on about what he went through. So I don't blame my father for anything because his psychology was developed from what happened to him. It could have been the same thing with me. I didn't allow that to happen because again, I think my curiosity helped me to gain understanding. And when I gain understanding and I gain compassion and I look at other people, they may be a mean person or something like that, but there's something that may have happened to them that developed like what, what happened to my father. So love that little boy. I love that little boy that needed to be embraced, that needed love, that didn't get when he was growing up. If I could go in a time machine and go back in time, I would go up to him and I would give him a hug. So I, I learned a lot about myself in terms of that and really about my father. I think that helped me so much. Yeah, really thank you for sharing such intimate detail from the past that is riddled with so much trauma. And I think in this sense, it makes sense why your entire being is predicated and focused on your curiosity. Because in retrospect, your curiosity was the only saving grace that allowed you to forgive your father two days before he passed away. Because your ability to tap into your curiosity despite how challenging your circumstances may be, it allowed you to focus and zoom in on that child of your father, right? It's like the flow state. You flowed and your state of being was focused on the child, the trauma that your father went through himself from the lack of knowledge with biological father, with how mean your grandmother and the great aunt were at the time. And because of that, you were able to like revitalize your compassion for him, which ultimately gave him the forgiveness. And I'm sure that forgiveness made all the difference for your father. And I'm sure it's what enabled him to rest in peace, right? Because I'm sure he is fully aware of the damage and the trauma he's inflicted in your life and his oldest son, which is you in this case, Bob. So strictly really, really appreciate that um, for sharing such details. And it really makes sense to me now, the full circle of your upbringing and who you are as this amazing human being and why curiosity shines through with any way and any time you answer our questions and all the times we've chatted offline leading up to this interview is your curiosity is your saving grace and it continues to guide your life forward uh, as long as it aligns with your personal statement which is to transform people and saving other people how to fish. Bob, I think this is the perfect opportunity for us to pivot and to talk about one of many interests and expertise that you have. But I think concurrently speaking, this is the area of study that you're most passionate and maybe knowledgeable about. And so of course, like we're not neuroscientists and I'm not sure how many neuroscientists listen to the podcast. So of course, uh, feel free to take it whatever directions you may. But what 
about systems thinking? Like first, what is systems thinking and what about the subject that interests you so much? Feel free to take this question to whatever direction you may. Okay, so I'm going to explain um, systems thinking in, in a very simplistic way. If we look throughout the world, even with our, our own selves, everything has systems built in within it. So our physical body is our human system. Then we have systems within our human body, like the cardiovascular system, uh, the digestive system, and so much more. Systems thinking in general is what is the connections between each part. So everything is, is in a system. How does one part of the system affect another part of the system in order for the system to keep flow, flow within the system itself? For example, our cardiovascular system in our body. So for an optimal cardiovascular system, we know that we need to have blood flow working properly. We, need, we know that our heart and our lungs and everything else has to function properly in order to have blood flow with the iron in, in each one that carries oxygen to oxygenate our body. My brain's all the way down to every single organ, our brain being the biggest at the end of it. So if there's an interruption in that, it's going to affect that. And now, if you have an interruption in, let's say, the oxygen being carried up to the brain, what's going to happen? Your brain is going to start to fail. If your brain starts to fail, it's going to affect other organs in your body. They start to fail as well. So we need to make sure that the system continues to work. This is just our human system. Now. We have other systems on the outside of that. We have systems in place in uh, organizations. But I'm going to explain a very, very simple way of systems that everybody should be familiar with. And I'm going to actually use a bathtub because this is where people freak out. So when you turn the water on in the bathtub, now, if you're in a wintertime, you want to have it more hot in, in that sense because it's probably cold outside. But then the water comes out and it's still cold. So what do you do? You turn it all the way up to the hot water thing, and it's still coming you all the way back up. Finally comes out, you jump in the shower, and it feels warm, it starts feeling good, but all of a sudden the hot, hot water comes out. So now you make an adjustment back down, you turn it all the way back down, then it starts getting cold, and you continue making this adjustment. How many people have experienced that? Have you guys experienced that? Yes. Mm -hmm. So the error in, in what we do as human beings is that we fail to understand feedback. We're trying to get immediate feedback instead of waiting down the line. We fail to understand that the hot water heater, and, and you have all this line that's filled in with cold water, so you have to wait for all that to be flushed out before the hot water comes. Then it gets mixed in with the, with the cold water and the hot water together to create warm water. And that's where you want to get to that optimal level. We know what it feels like for us once we reach it and we make that adjustment. But because of who we are as humans, we don't want to wait for that. So the feedback is that we try to make too many adjustments at once instead of just waiting a few minutes. But we're making these massive changes back and forth one way or another. And that's that system of water coming in. And that's just a very simple example of that water system in a house and, and making the adjustments. And we do the same thing in other areas in, in our life. I know, Ben, while you work in, in a city environment, was that Philadelphia? 
Uh, yes, I used to work for nonprofits in Philadelphia. Yes, and you probably worked in systems there, correct? How everything interacted. So one of the things that when, when I see systems in, for example, cities, and people are not looking at like what's happening down the line, just like the hot water thing going back and forth, people will make decisions, especially leaders and even engineers who should be understanding systems, but they don't really do that. So one of the things like in order to reduce traffic flow in a city, their immediate thing is that they're gonna build a wider highway or, or a whole new highway like that kind of stuff. The problem, what, what they don't understand is that the psychology of people, what people actually do versus the prediction of what, what they think is going to happen. So what happens is that during this thing, when they build these other highways, and I've seen this happen out here, we actually ended up with more traffic, way more traffic than ever before. What happens when you have an accident down in that system on the highway? Well, it slows down the rest of the system all the way down. One little accident and slows everybody down. So they failed to take in those considerations, just like we failed to take in considerations of our own personal actions, how it affects our biological system in ourself. Once people understand this and then make adjustments, because feedback loops are, are inherently built into systems, we can make adjustments and make the system flow a lot better. But again, it's very difficult to judge human behavior down the line. Uh, if we go at it alone, we can't have a positive impact the way we want in terms of the overall system. So we need to have all that working together, whether you work in an organization or the environment or otherwise. So, and then we have an impact on each other as well. You guys both work out. You have an impact on each other regarding that as well. So you're, you're helping each other's systems and you're challenging each other. Just like I'm challenging you right now to continue that physical health and, and your dietary matters and, and um, the mental fortitude that you both have and share together. Because I think without each other, you probably wouldn't even have that. But that's a, a, a basic understanding. I mean, I can go into to deeper details. I'm not going to do that now because I don't think there's a place. But again, if you want to learn more, The Fifth Discipline is one of the best books on systems thinking. There's other books out there as well. I have a number of them that I read, but I love Peter Senge's work in terms of that. Absolutely. You know, the idea of systems thinking really brings up the idea of connection to me, right? It's almost like recognizing that we're all connected. What we do impacts the systems and the people of another system. Um, really recognizing that connection is kind of what came up for me within the systems thinking. So I'm excited to explore it a little bit more and definitely would encourage listeners to consider how systems thinking might be affecting their own lives. You know, wrapping a bow around systems thinking, like you mentioned, there's loads more to say, but I think that was a phenomenal introduction to kind of get people's gears moving a little bit, hopefully inspire some curiosity within themselves. But I think where we'd like to go next is one of our more general questions. This is one that we ask all of our guests in the hopes to inspire listeners and or provide them some, you know, tangible advice in moving forward in their lives. So, Bob, say you have a mentorship program of 50 to 100 people that you're basically trying to help them create a life that they love, really design one that's built around that golden Buddha idea that you alluded to earlier in the conversation. But what pieces of advice would you as a mentor like to give out to your mentees? 
You know, one thing I would tell people is a challenge to beliefs that they currently hold. And I, I think that's critical. And I continually do that myself because what worked before may not work now. You need to ask questions to challenge that belief. And if it's not based in fact, you want to make sure that it's based in fact, not conjure or anything like that, based in fact. So imagine that the, the legs on that table is one part. So once you get to the table where it can't stand on its own, guess what happens to that belief? It's gone. So you need to challenge your, your beliefs. So I would suggest that you surround yourself with the right people. So if you're on your own personal mission, which is one thing I'm going to suggest that you develop your own mission, your own personal mission, not a company mission or anything like that, but your own personal mission, find the people that you want to associate with. One of the things that been said time again, uh, Jim Rohn has said this and others have said this, is like the associate with the most you are the sum average of that. It's really imperative, and I discovered this in my own life, is that who I'm with, I know that it affects me. You two affect each other in a profound way. And you wanna find people that not only support you, but also will challenge you to rise to the next level. Because if you don't do that, if you think that you're gonna be the big person in the room and you're gonna associate with people that, you know, well, I'm better than all these people and, and they're, they're going to prop me up. Guess what? You'll never rise to anything. They're going to bring you down to that level. Now, can we always get rid of all those people? And it's going to be very difficult, especially with family and everything like that. So if you have those kind of people, then you end up find people that, that will pull you up even higher just to, to balance that out. But eventually you're going to end up like letting go of some people, especially with your inner circle and really bringing yourself up with the right kind of people. So you, so you want to make sure that you associate with, with the right people and including some of those people may become your, your mentor as well. Like I had when I was in junior achievement before, but also in other areas, I wanted to find the best that can teach me to do certain things. So I went and, and found other people in other areas that whether it's in a martial arts or in psychology or otherwise that I could learn from. So I always look for, for even the foundational people. When I learned EEG neural feedback, I actually went to some of the pioneers of EEG neural feedback, the EEG Institute that actually worked with the VA and, and others to develop really new programs. So I went and I sought them and, and went to their training and otherwise. And I, I did that in almost everything else. I wanted to find the best that would challenge me. Even to this this day, I do that. So to me, that was very important. So two things so far, challenge your beliefs, find the right people to associate with. And I would say the third, and I mentioned personal mission, because without a personal mission, something to shoot for, something to strive for in our own life, really not gonna go and be the best we can possibly be whether it's personal mastery or otherwise. Because we have a, a mission and a vision, that's what pulls us forward. People we associate with will help to push us up and challenge us to move forward. But when we have something to strive for that's even bigger than ourselves, we're gonna give it our all. Whether you get paid for it or not, yes, it's good to get paid for, but when we have that mission and we do the things that align with that, 
That's one of the reasons we see people working harder in nonprofit organizations than they do in their own job. The job is just a job. But when they're doing something that aligns with who they really are, their effort into it. I've seen people work countless hours and not even imagine that they were working because it was something that was bigger than themselves. And, and I've done that same thing in, in nonprofits or anything. So can imagine doing something you enjoy doing, getting paid for it, and it doesn't seem like work. So I have that as part of that. And when you can have all three of those together, your greatness will shine bigger than you ever thought you could ever have. And you won't even think about your own personal greatness because the fulfillment that you will have from that will be absolutely amazing because you're going to make a difference in your way to this place we call life and this world as well. So, Yeah, uh, I feel like I'm ready to go run 10 marathons or rock climb El Capitan solo unassisted like Alex Hollard. Or, yeah, this is by far, I think, the most inspiring in terms of motivation. And it's not just like listening to a motivational speaker on stage, right? Aside from the interactive elements to this show and this episode, but to the fact that, once again, I could feel your passion. I'm not just hearing it. I'm not just processing it. I could feel your passion through the screen. And I can't even imagine how more pumped I would have felt if we did this in person, right? Yeah, and I think that holy trinity that you described is a effective tool and I think an effective mantra and ethos for anybody listening to this episode regardless of your age because you once again demonstrated to us that age is just a number and it is indeed very very much possible that you're literally living the warrior way Uh, you're literally living this way of continuing guiding your life forward with curiosity because I used to think before I met you that oh after a certain age you just have to accept your reality, your curiosity, what goes away. But the fact that I feel more curious, more motivated from you, I think it says a lot because I do pride myself for being an upholder of that curiosity mindset. And of course, Aiden and this show is a testimony to our belief and our subscription to that. So with that being said, I think this is the perfect opportunity uh, for us to roll out the red carpet for you, for you to share how can people connect with you um, so that they can also uncover. Because once again, the golden Buddha is already within us. You're not covering, you're not discovering, you're uncovering what you already have within you, like the champion mindset you alluded to throughout this episode. And then uh, we would love to conclude this episode with our final question of Discover More. But yeah, Bob, where could people connect with you and please share whatever projects you may have? Yeah, so... They can go to my website, bobchoat.com, and also at Bob Chode on, on Instagram, so they can connect with me there. I'm also on WhatsApp, but just connect with me on, on IG, and then um, we can message each other and so forth. I do plan on getting back after doing workshops as well, so that, that's going to be a lot of fun. Again, that'll be all on my um, website when I start post-pandemic kind of stuff and start getting out and and having fun and enjoying and uh, so those are the two best ways to get a hold of me IG uh, I'll post things I like to post on on books I'm currently reading and everything like that so you don't have to read everything I read but I think you'll get a little bit of insight into me in terms of my expansive and different topics and everything as well yeah and Bob 
uh, just for the listeners, he told us offline last week that he stopped counting his bookshelf after he surpassed 12,000 books. So definitely pick your own books and maybe not dive into every single book Bob shares, but we of course follow each other and I definitely love the content you share. Uh, with that being said, I'd like to conclude the episode by asking you the two-layer question. So first of all, as the, the guest of this two-part series, we would like to challenge you as the guest. What are some areas in your life that you'd like to discover more about uh, being the guest of this week? And secondly, what are some areas in listeners' lives you'd like to challenge for them to discover more about after listening to this extremely motivating and inspiring conversation? Yeah, so like with me, I'd like to, Bob, I want you to challenge yourself to really get out there in a much bigger way to deliver your message in whatever capacity you can possibly do than than you've ever done before. So that's what I'm telling myself, and I think that's important. I think a lot of times I've held myself back in terms of that, and being more in learning mode, but I think uh, like with this challenge, it's time for me to get out there in a bigger way than what I've had in the past and, and just express it out. For the listeners out there, really important that you have a meeting with the self, the undiscovered self that's always been there. Come into that and embrace that person. And how can you two work together to propel yourselves in unleashing that part of you while relinquishing that weaker part of you that no longer serves you. It may have served you at one point in time, but it's time for, and as Benoit mentioned again with the Golden Buddha, bringing that part out and letting that part of you now to help you to strive to your, your highest and best self. Because I think too many people will tend to put that self down or scared to unleash that self. It's really important. We can call it the authentic self. You can call it whatever you want. Bring that out and you'll see yourself much happier, much more fulfilled in whatever you do. Excellent piece of advice, Bob. Uh, really appreciate those insights. Uh, we're hoping that with through this conversation, through this podcast, it helps you as well be able to express your message like you just discovered or just expressed. We're all kind of along on this journey of discovering more, and we really just appreciate you sharing so much of your insight, your experience, and your values. It's been absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute amazing and fun experience, and, and boy, this time went by quick for me, so it's been fun. Yeah, we know you as the expert in the personal coaching space. We know your leadership courses ain't cheap, so we definitely have almost gratitude for it being able to cultivate the space and to have just this one-on-one experience just to lean on you and learn from you um, and upholding that collective student mindset. And with that being said, to all the listeners, as always, we will include all the information, all the books, all the resources we touched upon in the show notes below. And as always, if you have made it to this far, we really appreciate you for discovering more with us this week and we hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends.
We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.